0: everyone, and welcome to our new series, Unlocking the Future, EU Industry Day's podcast, presenting insights, trends and challenges, but also fresh opportunities emerging from Europe's industrial transformation. Everybody is talking about the topic we have lined up for you in this episode as we look beyond the EU for solutions in today's clogged up supply chains and other industrial and regional challenges. International trade is struggling to adapt to disrupted value chains, unstable geopolitics and the ongoing health crisis. The EU has responded by updating its one-year-old industrial strategy in line with COVID-19 realities. And many other actors, private and public, are doing the same to bolter their economic and industrial interests. It's a wild ride, but the experience could prove to be invaluable. To shed light on this subject, we've reached out to industrial policy correspondents and diplomats from EU delegations in Beijing. Tokyo, Washington DC, London, and Singapore, and we have joining us Frank Schmiedel, the international relations officer in China.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm the counselor for DG Grow, and uh, I work in the delegation in Beijing since 2019.
0: Philippe Detaxi Dupoe is the program manager and co-manager of the EU Japan Center for Industrial Cooperation in Japan.
2: I have a sort of double hat here in Tokyo. I am the uh, managing director of the EU-Japan Center for Industrial Cooperation. But I'm coming from the European Commission. I'm posted as a diplomat at the EU delegation to Japan.
0: Eike Klapper is a diplomat at the EU Embassy in Washington, D.C.
3: Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I am working in the, as you said, EU Embassy in Washington, D.C. I cover the industrial policy files here for the EU, but I'm also engaging with American interlocutors on, on what's happening in Europe.
0: Justina Lavničak is DG Grow Councillor in the newly created EU delegation to the UK. That's correct, yes. And last but not least, Isabella Pirolo is the industrial relations officer joining us from Singapore.
4: I work as an industrial policy correspondent and I cover the whole Southeast Asia, the ASEAN region. That is an organization composed by 10 countries, Singapore, Brunei, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, Philippines and Vietnam.
0: Thank you all very much for being here today. While no country or region is spared COVID's wrath, some are faring better than others. And their responses, political, industrial and even practical, may well reflect this. So let's talk to our speakers. Let's find out if this is true.
1: Well, after the first outbreak, China actually uh, got out of the uh, COVID uh, uh, quite quickly and quite well. They have actually benefited from uh, the shutdown elsewhere in the world and uh, Chinese exports have been booming. So their economy has been doing quite well. The real test might still come because uh, we don't know how this is going to go now with the more infectious variants like uh, Omicron. So far, I haven't seen an exit strategy from the COVID controls in China and uh, we don't know how they will react now to this very infectious new variant?
2: Well, there are some very concrete uh, changes that uh, have been brought by the COVID-19, and uh, perhaps the most obvious one is the total collapse in Japan of the tourism industry, because the Japanese borders have been uh, almost totally closed and uh, several uh, states of emergencies that have been decided by the Japanese uh, public authorities. They also have, of course, uh, an impact on the economy, which is uh, shrinking a little bit. But the COVID-19 had also some, uh, some positive impact in terms of uh, rediscovering the usefulness of uh, some uh, digital uh, tools. So in terms of reaching out to the stakeholders, the use of these digital tools uh, has some positive impact. And the same goes for the business-to-business matchmaking. Well, I think the biggest thing in the
3: U.S. was really the supply chain disruptions that happened after the COVID pandemic or during the COVID pandemic. It has been an issue for quite a while now that you go to a supermarket or other stores and there's, there's stuff you can't find. So the supply chains have been really stressed out by the pandemic. And this has been combined in the last weeks and months with a high level of inflation, so I think that's the the biggest issue that we see here in the U.S. on uh, related to COVID. I mean, the reason is not just the COVID pandemic, but it has played into it a lot.
5: In the case of the uh, UK, uh, COVID impacts are indeed very much compounded with the Brexit impacts under the current uh, UK Conservative government, uh, the UK is very much advocating uh, free and uh, open uh, economy. Following Brexit on a trade agenda, the UK is very much embracing the global Britain narrative, so they want to put the negotiations of new free trade agreements at the heart of the uh, trade policies. That's also the way to diversify the trade uh, and uh, assure less uh, dependencies. Here I also wanted to cite uh, two figures that I guess are very important and relevant in this context to note. According to the UK Office of Budgetary Responsibility, the cost of Brexit was estimated to be as high as 4% of GDP over the long term, while the cost of COVID was estimated only at 2%. So basically, the cost of uh, Brexit was estimated to be twice as high as the cost of COVID.
1: Um,
4: So let me start maybe from an ASEAN perspective. ASEAN was on a very stable path in a pre-COVID area to become the fourth largest economy in the world. When COVID hit, this path, of course, was uh, largely destabilized. Uh, From a Singapore point of view, Singapore is a very small country and it's a financing and trade hub. So even if physically it's very small, uh, it's economically a powerhouse. And uh, uh, Singapore, as one of its uh, basic principles, openness, and they firmly believe in multilateralism and international trade. So long story short, I think Singapore, when it was relating to um, international trade, first thing they they decided to do as government was really to commit to value chains, in the sense to keep them open. And I think from an ASEAN perspective, uh, international trade, of course, and multilateralism were very important, especially from a health and vaccines point of view. But they were also trying to flourish the intra-ASEAN market.
0: Taking the example of Europe, the EU's COVID response, for example, has been very robust, yet very adaptable. And we saw that with this year's update of the 2020 industrial policy. How is this agility seen from your side of the globe?
1: So the Chinese see their way of handling COVID as uh, the best way of uh, handling COVID. And they like to demonstrate the errors that are made abroad, contrasting them to their own system, which uh, has handled the situation in their view much better than many other countries. So there there is a certain tendency to try to demonstrate what uh, China's leadership sees as the superiority of the Chinese system compared to um, Western systems.
2: I think what has been uh, part particularly noticed by the Japanese stakeholders and from Tokyo, is uh, the strong reaction and agility of the EU in terms of uh, coping with the um, sanitary crisis. That was really impressive to see Europe able to mobilize uh, its companies for producing uh, uh, millions uh, of uh, doses of uh, vaccines. Most of the vaccines used in Japan are actually produced in Europe? I think the US is very interested, but always in particular things.
3: So one big issue was the export authorizations for vaccines because back in the days where we didn't have vaccines um, and we need to tackle this pandemic all around the world, we needed a lot of cooperation between the EU and the US. And so there was a lot of interest to work with us to make sure that the vaccines get there where they help the most, that everybody has the same ingredients. And a particularly relevant issue for DG Grow or also industry is the supply chain review. So the U.S. did a supply chain review. We did a supply chain review. So there's a lot of engagement on looking at supply chains and seeing how do we make them future-proof? How do we coordinate um, this kind of issues?
5: Well, from the U.K. perspective, uh, the EU is not seen as a particularly agile actor, that was one of the reasons why uh, UK left the European Union. Uh, let me maybe take the example of uh, vaccines, where at least in the beginning of 2021, there was kind of a competition between the UK and the EU, with the UK having a head start, but then EU uh, catching up and even uh, well, outpacing in, in some countries uh, the UK vaccination
4: campaign. What the EU is doing, it's uh, extremely well-perceived, especially because uh, the European Union provide a member state uh, where working closely together and they mobilized over 800 million euros to support ASEAN's fight against the coronavirus. So this is something that was extremely helpful. And of course, also the US provided more than 3 billion euros to COVAX. So that helps secure at least 1.8 billion doses uh, for 19 Lower middle income countries, including many countries in ASEAN. So I think that you see its own role reinforced in this part of the world.
0: And what particular challenges would you say European companies face in foreign markets?
1: The biggest challenge at the moment uh, is that you cannot get staff easily into. China. So usually you need foreign experts, managers, technicians um, to to help with certain uh, specialist tasks. And it's very difficult to get a visa. It's very difficult to get a flight. It's very difficult to do all the quarantine and control measures that China imposes on, on foreign travel. So many of them stay basically back home in wherever they are. They don't come to China. So there is a certain, um, yeah localization and uh, uh, indigenization of of the Chinese economy, meaning that uh, more and more posts get filled by Chinese nationals because they are here, it's easier. and uh, that doesn't always make it easy to um, to work together because uh, uh, communication channels depend on people. You can replace them with, uh, with online channels, but still uh, sometimes you really need also the people to be on the spot. And that, that's missing.
2: Well, I would actually stress one thing which is under the radar in Europe and that's a, a big trend for EU-Japan business cooperation outside Japan, in Africa, in Latin America, in the ASEAN countries, it means that more and more Europeans look at Japan as certainly an important and dynamic uh, market, which is not easy to access, so quite a lot of things need to be done, but also increasingly uh, looking at Japan as a hub from which it's possible to go outside Japan together with Japanese companies and uh, that's a very very new and uh, interesting doors.
3: European companies are very present in the US market and also very successful. The issue right now is that we have to see how the green transition would actually work and then obviously the US has the interest to create their own green industries, so you could say they are a bit behind us in creating their solar production, their battery production and we acknowledge this obviously because we want them to produce their own technology so we reach the climate goals together um, but now we'll have to see how the money that I mentioned in the infrastructure package will actually be spent and if European companies can participate in that. So it's a bit early days. But in general, I would say we are in a very good situation with U.S. And if there are barriers, um, most of the companies are able to, to deal with them.
5: UK is very particular here because obviously until a year ago it was still a member of the European Union and a member of the internal market. So for the European companies the biggest change that happened is obviously that uh, they are no longer trading uh, at the internal market uh, conditions. And even if we have... uh, quite ambitious zero tariffs and zero quotas trade and cooperation agreement, they now have to get used to that are additional cost, uh, there is VAT, there is a need to comply with rules of origins, there is a paperwork, and obviously it all impacts very much the uh, supply chain integrations. We have for the time being uh, less of a challenge of uh, diverging regulations, um, so-called non-tariff barriers, but for sure this will come uh, with time as this is very much uh, on the UK agenda now to review all the EU retained law and come with uh, new and possibly divergent rules. Uh, they already started uh, to introduce it, for example, with the new UK REACH uh all the new UK conformity assessed marking, uh, even if the implementation of those has been delayed. Um, It is said that basically this year might be a year of divergence uh, on the UK side. This is something that I'm looking very much uh, at it with with different colleagues. There's ongoing reform of state aid, ongoing reform of public procurement rules that might obviously impact the way under which the current trading arrangements uh, are done with the EU. So I would say that's that's basically the biggest the challenge uh, for for the EU companies to sum up that the UK is no longer is internal market, it is a third country, and they have to obviously learn uh, all the new rules that apply.
4: The opportunity offered for EU business are really um, potentially uh, unlimited. And I see this part of the world as a a place where business can be inventive, when business can, Uh, really engage with uh, some like-minded countries. So I would say like, we we sometimes think of going international, uh, it's very complicated and difficult, but uh, we also have in place a lot of instruments that can support businesses in this uh, journey. And uh, being a European business, an EU business, here makes a difference. I think there is a brand, the EU brand here, it's uh, very strong. And uh, going international might not be a must, but it's definitely an opportunity.
0: Thank you very much indeed for sharing your experiences and insights. we have given us plenty to think about. Um, and we would like to say thank you to all our speakers today. That's it for this episode of the Unlocking the Future podcast. Check out more in the series online. And please do like, share and show how much you care about each topic online. This podcast series is an initiative of the European Commission and is part of the EU Industry Days 2022, Europe's flagship annual event on industry, taking place in the week of the 7th to the 11th of February 2022. For more information on the EU Industry Days, please visit the website. This podcast was produced by VO with the financial support of the European Union. Its contents do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Commission.